Benjamin Franklin said famously, nothing is certain but death and taxes. Now, in reality, a wise man, of course, like Franklin, knew that there were many other certainties. But uh, there are many certainties that a follower of Jesus Christ can bank on. And of spiritual truths, we as Christians should not be afraid to say, I know. Now, the culture and climate of our day seems to frown upon certainty. It's somehow viewed as arrogance or presumption. I've discovered that it's popular to say you're searching for the truth and very unpopular to claim to have found it. But as biblical people, we should not be afraid to declare that there are some things we know, some things that we really know, we absolutely know. I know should be one of our bylines. Now, for the past six weeks, we've been studying this short letter by the Apostle John. And to him, there are many things that we can and we should know. The word know occurs 39 times in this letter. Eight times just in this final chapter. So today we're going to wrap up our look at this New Testament epistle. And what a fit ending that it is. I find that many Christians are building their lives upon uncertainties rather than certainties. And there may be some of you here this morning who still question the security of your salvation. I hope I can put that to rest today. And that you will leave here with the certainty of knowing some things. Things upon which you can build and grow your spiritual life. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to focus on four things that John says in this final chapter. Things that you can know. Things you can know for certain. The first is this, we know God has given us eternal life. Now, folks, this is foundational. If this is in doubt in your mind, you will struggle with your emotions about the future. When I was growing up, I didn't have an assurance of my salvation. Uh, I thought it was based on how I felt things were between God and me. Oh, I hoped I was going to heaven. I hoped I had eternal life. I hoped that when it was time for me to check out, that all my sins were forgiven. Can anybody relate to that? Mm -hmm. I remember being sick as a little boy, and I in the bathroom upstairs, I'd be hanging my head over the toilet, and I would be singing a little song that I learned in Sunday school. Into my heart, into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today, come in to stay, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. I prayed that over and over and over again because I wasn't certain. But this kind of hope uh, that we're talking about here is foreign to the teaching of the Bible. Biblically, the concept of hope is guaranteed certainty. And this is just what John is talking about in this last chapter. So let's go to the text to 1 John and chapter 5. If you grab a seatback Bible in front of you, page 1304. 1 John chapter 5. And notice what he writes, 1 John 5, verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may, what? What's the word? Know that you have eternal life. 
I'm writing these things. So what are those things that John's referring to? Well, I think he's going back up in the preceding verses that all have to do with the identity of Jesus. That's the foundation of this certainty. And so John presents several witnesses to who Jesus is. This is testimony given. The first is the triune witness of water, blood, and the Spirit. Look at verse 6. John says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Now, I'll tell you right away, this is one of the most difficult passages for Bible students to deal with. But I think with all of my reading and thinking, where I think he comes down is he's talking about two events in the life of Jesus. One is his baptism, and the second is his death. So in his baptism, you have the water plus the descent of the Spirit as a dove, and then his blood, Jesus' blood, shed on Calvary's cross. That's what we remembered this morning as we celebrated communion. Now, John is really dealing with a heresy of his day. Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments on a view that was held by many in the day that is now refuted by the Apostle John, and it goes like this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man. But when he was baptized by John in the Jordan, the eternal Christ came upon him and entered into him so that from the moment of the baptism, the eternal Christ was dwelling in the human Jesus. And he continued to do so until just before the crucifixion took place. Then the eternal Christ went back to heaven and it was only the man Jesus who was crucified. But John refutes that here. And to present Jesus as God and man in one person, the man Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah. And that doctrine is essential to salvation. A second witness that John produces is the witness of God. In verse 9, he writes this, If we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his Son. Let me ask you, have you ever asked for directions? Now, I know that idea is nonsensical to men. It's antithetical, but just work with me for a moment here. If you ask for directions, did you follow them? Why? It's because you believe that they were telling you the truth, right? Have you ever given directions to anybody? Has that evil thought ever entered into your mind? I could send them from here to Timbuktu. They won't find their way back for a month. Well, we so quickly believe the witness of others, don't we? And yet John says the witness of God is greater. It's more trustworthy. We need to believe his witness. I mean, what is the essence of faith? It is believing God's word. It's believing what he said is trustworthy. Well, John gives one more witness. It's the witness of the indwelling presence of Christ. In verse 10, he writes, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his Son. Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, and he declares this truth that the Spirit himself 
bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There is an internal witness, he says, to the truth of God's presence in our lives. It's a settled conviction that I belong to him. Now, does this mean that I never have any doubts? No, not at all. That's very human, especially during difficult times. But that there is an overarching, consistent witness of God in your inner being that you are his child. Now, it isn't necessarily this great emotional feeling. It could be. But most important is that deep down sense that all that God has declared is true. I keep going back to something that Jesus said. Remember that as he talked seriously about discipleship, many people began to walk away. In fact, I have this image in my mind that Jesus says these hard things and then starting at the outer ring, remember the word disciple, it would just use as follower and many then began to just drift away and layer after layer peeled away until the only ones left were the apostles. And Jesus looked at me and he said, are you leaving too? And Peter, for once, his foot is not in his mouth and he said, Lord, where should we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. That's that subtle conviction I'm talking about. The Spirit bearing witness in our spirit. You see, the Spirit's witness isn't an inner confidence that is just somehow worked up. You know, I know it's true, I know it's true, I know it's true. Three witnesses that John says to the truth that God has given us eternal life. The witness of water, blood, and the Spirit, the witness of God himself, and the witness of the indwelling presence of Christ. And it all fulfills the requirement of the Old Testament law, remember? The law required three witnesses to determine whether something was really true. And John's saying, here are your witnesses. Jesus is God in the flesh. Through him, you have eternal life. And John makes this linkage between Jesus and eternal life so clear. Look at verse 11. John says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Verse 12 is so significant in dealing with various religious and spiritual claims today. It goes to the foundation of that question, who is Jesus? And the Bible declares that there's eternal life in no other way other than believing in Jesus, trusting in him. All the other religions and practices of spirituality may have some good points and some important points to them, but only through Christ can one experience eternal life. The only way one acquires this life is by believing in Christ. So let me say to you, if you struggle with the assurance, the security of salvation, would you memorize verses 11 and 12 this week? And then over the course of the next several weeks, you just think on those things. What is it that John is saying? And ask the Holy Spirit to confirm with your spirit that you are his child. Until you do that, your spiritual growth will be stunted. You need to get to the point where you understand this is a certainty from Scripture. Now, there's a second certainty that John wants us to know, and that is that we know God answers prayer. Verse 14, 
John says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. Now they say confession is good for the soul, but bad for the reputation. I have to confess, prayer is a mystery to me. Uh, why he seems to answer some prayers and not others. Why he seems to answer some prayers for others and not me. I, I, I don't understand all that that's there. I suspect many Christians struggle for understanding this about prayer. And though prayer is given as a centerpiece for our faith, we say we believe in it, but most often we experience the guilt of admitting we really don't believe what the Bible says about prayer. But again, part of it is that we need to see prayer with these two ends of the spectrum. On one end is the sovereignty of God who knows all things, who does all things for his own glory. But then at the other end is the responsibility of man, the permissive will of God which makes allowances for consequences of the fall, for, for cause and effect, for the, for the consequences of moral choices that we make. Both are true. Both are involved. And, and they complicate this matter, I think, of believing prayer. Now, there's a danger regarding prayer that I think we have to be conscious of. And that is that in prayer, we test God rather than trust God. And the way we do that, I think, is this. We put God on trial, the verdict determined by whether or not he answers prayers the way we want him to answer them. Right? Anybody relate there? I am correct, aren't I? Let's take a little time. Let's think about what these two verses teach us about prayer. Uh, there are several key words in those verses. The first one is confidence. This is the spirit in which we come. The word confidence means essentially boldness, cheerful courage, free and fearless confidence. And the issue here is our view of God and the accessibility of God. The writer of the book of Hebrews speaks to this when he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We do not need to shrink back from coming into God's presence. If we do, we don't understand this God then who sent his son to die for you. But he invites us to come boldly, freely with confidence into his very presence. I don't know if you've ever thought about this when you go to prayer, but God is delighted that you're coming. He's delighted. Can you imagine if your child who you love dearly were to come to you and say, Dad, I, I have something on my heart. And you said, I've just been waiting to give it to you. I'm going to put you in that closet. You're not going to eat for a week. Is that what we're going to do? Imagine this heavenly father delights when his children come and we come boldly. Another word is toward. This is the relationship in which we come. It's just this short little word in the Greek language of the New Testament, pros. Uh, it's translated toward here. Oftentimes it's translated before. And it means basically facing. 
or face to face. And Paul uses this word, for example, when he describes our relationship with God because of Christ. And he writes in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also obtain access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And Paul uses that little word, he translates it here with, we have, we have peace facing God, face to face with God. One reason we come with boldness to the throne is because of the access that we've been given. It's an access that's acquired by the acceptable sacrifice of Christ. He has secured this access for us. It is ours by faith in Christ. And our access, this is important, our access is a matter of relationship, not our emotional state. We need to approach prayer, and we need to rescue our approach on prayer from the tyranny of our emotions, from the bondage of our moods. It's not that at all. We come boldly into the presence of God because of this access that's been acquired, secured, and guaranteed because of what Jesus did for us. Here are some other words. According to his will. This is the parameters within which we come. You know what? God never promises us that there are no limits or parameters within prayer. And you know what? Even Jesus experienced that. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? And he prayed this as he contemplated what lay ahead of him. Father, remove this cup from me, this cup of, of suffering. Yet, not my will, but your will be done. I think it goes to the purpose of prayer. Let me just read a couple of statements that I ran across this week on the subject of the purpose of prayer. God does not exist to answer our prayers, but by our prayers we come to discern the mind of God. Here's another one. Prayer is God's way of conforming me to his will, not my way of conforming God to my will. Boy, there's a difference, isn't it? It's helped me in my understanding uh, to put an Old Testament passage alongside this one in John chapter 5. Uh, it's found in Psalm 37, probably familiar to many of you, but it goes like this, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now if you take those verses and you just set them over here all by themselves, Okay, apart from any other biblical teaching, what you might find yourself thinking is, God, you have to give me anything I desire. Everything I desire, you just said you'd give to me. But does that sound right? If I couple those verses with 1 John 5, 14 and 15, then I can pray something like this. God, this is the desire of my heart. I pray that you would give me that desire or change my desire so that my desire lines up with your desire. Do you think God will answer that kind of prayer? I do. God, either give me the desire or change it. Now, we have to read on in Psalm 37, though, to see another expectation, another requirement. Look at this. He goes on in that passage. He says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Oh, we all love that. And then it says, be still before the Lord, and, uh-oh, wait 
patiently for him. Patience is a great demonstration of faith, isn't it? Of trust. Wait patiently. It really tests our faith. Am I willing to wait? All the while I'm saying, Lord, either give me my desire or change my desire. Here's something else we read in that 1 John passage. He hears us. This is the assurance with which we come. We have the assurance that God hears us. He's not deaf. He doesn't turn away from his children. And so when you pray, your heavenly Father is attentive to you. Now listen, that doesn't mean that sometimes he's not silent. Being silent and being inattentive are two different things. But he hears us. He always hears us. Remember, God lives outside of time. He's not bound by time. He can hear your prayer and the prayer of millions of others of his children all at the same time and respond to each and every one of them. And then we have the request. This is the promise with which we come. I heard a speaker decades ago make this observation. I've never forgotten it. They said, God will answer your prayers in one of four ways. When the request is not right, God says no. When the time is not right, God says slow. When you are not right, God says grow. And when everything is right, God says go. Certainties. We know that God has given us eternal life. We know that God answers prayer. Now here's another thing. We know God protects his own. Let's go back to the text of 1 John 5 and look at verse 18. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. A couple of things to be reminded of here. First of all, is Satan's intent in our lives. John 10.10 begins by talking about Satan as a thief who has come only to steal and kill and destroy. That is his intent. He does all that he can to distort God's word, to, to deny God's word, to derail us from following after Christ. But we also need to be reminded of God's power in the life of the believer. This is not just a, a counterweight to Satan's power and his intent. More significantly, it's the overthrow of his intent. So John writes in chapter 4, verse 4, remember, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Look earlier at chapter 5, what John declares. It comes in verses 4 and 5. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The believer in Christ cannot be defeated ultimately because God is protecting them. That is the doctrine of perseverance. I love what Eugene Peterson writes about this in connection with Psalm 129. He says, The central reality for Christians is the personal, unalterable, persevering commitment God makes to us. Perseverance is not the result of our determination. It is the result of God's faithfulness. What a great truth there is to that. I'm going to just jump down here because I want us to think about some implications of this truth that we know. The first is that God is responsible for the guarantee 
of our salvation. Number one. The second is then God sets me free to obey. And then there's this great sense of joy and peace and security and stability when I know that God protects me. So what do we know for sure? God has given us eternal life. What do we know for sure? God answers prayer. What do we know for sure? God protects his own. Now there's one last thing that we need to see what he says, and that's that we know Christian faith is true reality. Look at the end of this chapter and the end of the book, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Look at the basis of faith that John says here. He says, you need to understand that the Son of God has come. This has been one of John's priorities in this letter. It is to demonstrate that God has come in the flesh. It's true. It's real. The second thing he reminds people is that God is the true God. And with all the competing philosophies and theologies and religions of the day, he says, this God who has been revealed through his Son Jesus is the only true God. There is no fraud. There is no deception here. And he wants us to know that this eternal life comes to us because God is true. That's why you can trust him. He also says an interesting thing here about the purpose of faith. He says it is that we would know Christ. Christianity is a relationship. It is a knowledge of and a trust in Christ. It's in a person And the result of knowing him, then, is an identity in him. My life, my destiny, my future, my security is all wrapped up in that of Jesus. Now, throughout this letter, John has drawn upon his personal experience with the Christ to argue that one can know God truly. This is the word made flesh. And through him, this is the amazing thing, through him, God is knowable. God is knowable. I think it's interesting that the end, it almost looks like a tack on, but I don't think it is. At the very end, what flows most logically and expectantly from an emphasis on what is true is a caution. It's a warning against what is false. And so he says in verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Oh, I don't think he's thinking just about things of wood and, and stone here anything that supplants God as supreme, as priority. Well, it's time to step back, see this short little New Testament letter as a whole. So to distill down this entire book to its essence, its essentials, let me just suggest that there are three great emphases throughout this epistle. We've seen them as we've walked through it. Number one, Jesus Christ is God of very God. God in the flesh. He is the full, true incarnation of the God of creation. The second thing is the genuine faith. True faith is that which believes that proposition, that Jesus Christ is the God-man. To deny the incarnation is to deny the truth of God. And lastly, genuine faith will be demonstrated by the fruit 
of righteousness. Look, I want you to flip back, if you still have your Bible open, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Notice what he says, starting at verse 3. John says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. If we believe it, it becomes a part of our life, we live it. It's as simple as that. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this wonderful little letter, for all the things that you have for us to learn from it. Most of all is to know that Jesus Christ is truly God, that you sent him to take on human flesh, the God-man, living a perfect life, going to the cross, that as human slash divine, he would die a death that is owed by every one of us. And so we thank you that you were satisfied with his death. You took him out of the grave, seated him with you in the heavenly places. And God, now we understand that when we come to know you and to believe in you, that our lives should be different. That we should now demonstrate the fruit of righteousness and obeying how you want us to live. But we do it because your Holy Spirit lives in us and empowers us to live in that way. And so to that end, we commit ourselves to you again for a new week. In Christ's name, amen.